When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. The holidays can be a hard time for people who either miss loved ones or, on the other hand, have a rough time with the intensity of being around their family in close quarters. Hopefully, we here at Supernatural Circumstances can add a little cheer, perhaps by way of fear, to entertain you this holiday season. There is much folklore around this time of year, historically called Yule by pagan practitioners. According to Britannica.com, Yule, a festival observed historically by Germanic peoples and in modern times primarily by neo-pagans, coincides with the winter solstice, December 21st or 22nd, in the northern hemisphere and June 20th or 21st in the southern hemisphere. The pre-Christian festival originated in Scandinavia and was later subsumed along with other pagan celebrations into the Christian holiday of Christmas. Yule is one of the oldest winter solstice festivals, originating from the ancient Norse thousands of years ago. Its roots are complicated to trace, although there are several theories about how and why the festival was celebrated. It's generally agreed that Yule celebrations began as a Norse festival, although assessments of the purpose and traditions vary. Like most winter solstice festivals, themes of light, fire, and feasting are common threads. Some historians think sacrifices were an important part of the observance either to the gods and other supernatural beings, such as elves, the dead, or both. In the harsh climate of northern Europe, most cattle were slaughtered because they could not be fed during the winter. Meat, therefore, was plentiful for a midwinter feast or to leave out as an offering. Some contend that the original festival was a sort of Norse Day of the Dead with the god Odin as a major player. Among Odin's many names was Jolnir, and among his many duties was acting as a god of the dead. However, this has been disputed in recent years, with at least one historian positing that Yule was a New Year festival intended to set the tone for the months ahead. Among the scores of holiday tales from all over the globe, one of my favorites comes from Iceland, where over the 13 days leading up to Christmas, the trolls known as Yulesvinar, or Christmas Boys, or Yule Lads, come to visit. From Ranker.com, quote, The purpose of these visits was always malevolent. There were 13 individual Yule Lads with unique names and personalities. Each one performed a wicked task related to their specific persona, and they often stole food and resources that were important to survival. I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce the names of these characters because, holy smokes, I can't speak Icelandic. Suffice it to say, three of them were said to steal milk and farm animals. Another allegedly licked up leftover food from pots. Yet another took sausages and one more held a hook he used to steal meat. Another one of these creatures would come and slam doors at night for the sole purpose of scaring sleeping children, and yet another supposedly followed children to steal their candles and lanterns, leaving them alone in the dark. The Icelandic Yule Lads even had a creepy flesh-hungry cat that hung out with them. From scarylittlechristmas.wordpress.com, quote, The Yule Cat's prey consists of both children and adults. 
Unlike the others, this cat does not care about your misdeeds during the year. The only insurance against being torn apart and eaten by this giant feline is receiving an article of new clothing for Christmas. So shop wisely. I like cats, but I'm not sure I'd like a visit from that one. Anyway, in the next part of the show, Morgan will tackle one of the most well-known and spooky Christmas cryptids, that of Krampus. Krampus is a horned, anthropomorphic figure in the central and eastern alpine folklore of Europe who, during the Advent season, scares children who have misbehaved. Assisting St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus, the pair visit children on the night of the 5th of December, with St. Nicholas rewarding the well-behaved children with modest gifts such as oranges, dried fruit, walnuts, and chocolate, while badly behaved ones receive only punishment from Krampus with birch rods. Yikes. After Morgan's Krampus story, you'll hear our interview with one of our more regular guests, cryptozoologist and researcher Chad Lewis. He'll discuss with us his recent book, Winter Legends and Lore, which our very own Morgan Knudsen illustrated. According to the description of the book on Chad's website, chadlewisresearch.com, quote, Winter may seem like a quiet time, but it is actually filled with bizarre tales and stories of weird spirits, odd tales of Santa Claus, Bizarre superstitions, strange weather predictions, Krampus the Christmas monster, stories of little people, New Year's Eve rituals, the deadly Wendigo, and numerous other holiday traditions for the darkest days of the year. End quote. The book is fascinating, and the illustrations are scary as heck. You really should check it out. Well, enough of the sales pitch. Let's move on. Here's Morgan. When I was asked by Chad Lewis, folklorist and monster hunter, to write the foreword and illustrate his new book, Winter Legends and Folklore, I had some things to consider. It was minus 40 Celsius that afternoon, and as the light began to wane and the moon began to wax on the frozen pines outside my window, something became very apparent to me. Monsters don't live in the dark. They live in the cold. The darkness simply follows. It became the opening to my foreword. Tackling this book and its illustrations was an interesting adventure for me. I spun down the rabbit hole of cultures and creatures that included witches, werewolves, gnomes, and mistletoe. I delved deep into traditions from across the globe, which included characters such as the Yule Cat, Santa Claus, and the Belsnickle. However, while these tales often may be laughed about as silly fireside yarns and folk tales, one monster lurked in the darkest depths of the human imagination and has spanned the continents in a way very few have. Far away in the north, and long before anyone ever held the notion of Christmas celebrations, Krampus was making an entrance. The Norse people knew him as the spawn of the god of the underworld. That may not be a name too many are familiar with, but her father, Krampus's grandfather, doesn't get much bigger. Now made famous by Tom Hiddleston's portrayal in the Marvel films, Krampus is directly related to the trickster god, Loki, who had a host of other strange children, including Fenrir the wolf, and also a world serpent. And Krampus isn't simply one creature. To make matters worse, he's one of many demons, known as the Perkta, and they developed out of the Alpine pagan folklore that said the long winter months needed to be scared away. Men would dress in masks and frightening costumes, wandering the streets of villages and terrifying residents. And over time, the look of Krampus began to be shaped by these very costumes. However, one demon got recognition from the growing breed that was Krampus. Adopted by Christian traditions in the 1600s, Krampus began appearing alongside St. Nicholas as a polar opposite, where Santa rewarded, Krampus punished, and not just children. In Austria, he was known by his current name, which comes from the dramatic Krampen, which means claw. A fitting title for this demonic creature, with hooved feet, clawed hands, and a nasty temper. Krampus wasn't exactly a Christmas monster. December 25th was already a busy date for pagans and Christians. Instead, Krampus not, Krampus night, and his deemed arrival date was actually December the 5th, the night before St. Nicholas Day and the night before, the morning children would discover 
whether they received gifts from Santa or a switch from Krampus. It sounded like community tradition and fun and games around a holiday season, a way to frighten children into behaving while the relatives were in town to have dinner. However, there's a dark side to even the strangest of lore, and Krampus is no different. The story circulated of how, if you were to be punished by Krampus for what it deemed unruly behavior, you weren't about to get coal in your stocking. Instead, he would beat naughty children with branches, throwing them in a sack on his back, and was said to drag them back to his lair, where he might either eat them or haul them off to hell for further torture. If you dig further back into the Krampus lore, you'll discover he's often strapped with chains, and that's because in some versions of the story, he is actually the slave of St. Nicholas. Some scholars believe that the chains were a reminder to Krampus and to the public that the demon is subservient to a more Christian entity. We could definitely go down a rabbit hole with that one, but I digress. For centuries, Austrian children have cowered in fear at Krampus to the point where Krampus festivities were banned by the Chancellor after the Austrian Civil War. At one time, the Catholic Church forbade the terrifying celebrations, and in the early 20th century, Krampus was prohibited by the Austrian fascist government because it was considered a creation and fault of the Social Democrats. However, the tradition was invigorated with the fall of the government after World War II, and in 2006, an Austrian child psychologist argued the violence and demonic imagery associated with Krampus celebrations was simply not suitable for, for children and should be outright banned. So, was Krampus nearly the victim of cancel culture? Or did this go beyond a group of people who didn't like a good scary story? In Austria, Krampus is not just a name, and on December the 5th, kids have been known to cower in fear as the silent frozen nights turn into a place of terror. The beauty of the snow-clad mountains and hand-painted villages in Austria turn from a painting of elegance to a terrain where it may not be Krampus that gets you, but rather your own neighbors. Holly Muller, a half-Austrian journalist from The Independent, remembers her family's stories vividly in an article she wrote on the subject of the monster. She said, They come to find you where you live. They are masked, wielding whips and chains and drunk on schnapps offered at every house. To you, a small child, they are actual devils that haunt your nightmares. You dread them for months, trying desperately to be good, pretending to your friends that you aren't afraid and you don't care. But when they come, a pack of them, following St. Nicholas as his petrifying henchman, your heart hammers and your mouth turns dry. Their strange voices send a shiver down your spine. They shriek like banshees and clamor to look in the windows while you cower within. The shutters hooked open to expose you to the night. You dare not glance at the dreadful faces pressed to the glass. You know they've come for you because you've been bad, refused to go to bed on time, played truant, or fought with your sister. Her family's story is one of many, and in fact reads as the very fiber of our nightmares, like some real-life version of the Purge, or worse. The spirit of Krampus, alive and well amongst these small communities, rears its ugly head in the form of humans, rather than disembodied entities or roof-climbing goatmen. She continues, There's a loud bang as the front door is flung wide. You jump with fright, praying fervently, sobbing, but it's too late for that. Krampuses surge over the threshold, shake their chains as they approach the long hall. Then they're in the room, leering, glowering, tongues hanging, guttural growls filling your ears. You can't escape them. You can't switch on the light and make them disappear. You can't call for Mama for comfort. She and Papa stand nearby and watch with arms crossed while the demons lash you with sharp sticks. Then, St. Nicholas begins to read a list of your bad deeds from his magic book, his face solemn, disapproving beneath his tulip-shaped bishop's mitre, the heavy crucifix around his neck glinting amongst the folds of his glorious robes, his white beard wagging. 
Show me that you know how to pray, he commands. You drop to your knees and begin reciting a Hail Mary. But before you can finish, one of the Krampuses grasps you roughly by the scruff and slings you into a creaking basket on his back. He takes you out of the house, into the cold air and darkness. You know he is going to drown you, or eat you, or take you to hell. You holler for forgiveness, peering through the gaps in the wicker for a sign of salvation, hoping to be rescued. But no one comes. It is the end of you. So terrifying was this wicked and hell-raising practice that it was banned in 1930 and didn't make a resurgence until the last 20 years as Western interests began to look at the more frightening tales the Europeans could deliver. Muller's father had once commented, It was always the waiting that was the worst. The silence before the onslaught, he said. Most of the kids were well aware of the monsters about to arrive and that they were indeed people in costume, but it didn't much matter. What's more frightening than a bunch of huge, often drunk adults banging on your windows and doors and then dragging you out into the frozen snow for further torment? I can't think of much apart from a real-life Krampus. What made it worse was that Krampus was not simply a December 5th occurrence, but rather he had a year-around presence in homes across Austria. And according to They Do What? A Cultural Experience of Extraordinary and Exotic Customs from Around the World, many homes had a constant reminder of Krampus's existence. Bundling up batches of sticks, which they would hang around the home as a reminder of the beatings and lashes the children would receive if they refused to behave. If one Krampus wasn't enough, oh no, there's a female version of Krampus, known as Berta, depending on the region. She never quite made it into the realm of Christianity, and nor did she make it into the folklore fame as her counterpart did, but she was said to represent both sides of the philosophical coin, good and evil, and was both a monster and a goddess. She was known for giving those who had been good, beautiful silver coins. To those she deemed naughty, she would release her evil temper and disembowel her victims, and afterwards stuff them with straw and rocks and stitch them back together like a page from the books of Clive Barker. It wasn't until the 19th century that Krampus began popping up on the Christmas cards and merchandise, and a long-held tradition was to send Krampus cards on December 5th, a tradition myself and author Chad Lewis partake in every year. The first images which popped up in the West can be traced back to Blab Magazine's Bonte Beauchamp. He first published those images in the US, initially in his magazine and then in a set of books. If you happen to find one of these originals, consider yourself lucky, as they are extremely rare and sought after. During the two world wars, much of the Krampus merchandise, such as postcards, were sadly destroyed. But in the 1950s, a brief and strange era arose. Sexy Krampus. Thankfully, it didn't last. I feel like sexy and Krampus don't quite fit in the same sentence. Krampus wasn't alone in terrifying European traditions either. In Iceland, Chad Lewis writes about the Yule Cat, a giant cat who will eat you if you are not gifted clothing for the Christmas season. Not a fun premise if you were one of those families who couldn't afford new clothes that year. But suddenly, getting clothing for Christmas as a child wasn't so bad. The Bellsnickel, another mention in the folklore of the Dutch, was the ill-tempered cousin of Santa, a tattered-looking, thin old man who would beat on those with sticks who were unappreciative of their gifts, which he may or may not bestow on them. No matter what your take on this phenomenal and mortifying piece of human history, there is no doubt whatsoever that Krampus has become ingrained in the minds and hearts of many children, parents, and storytellers across the world. Very few characters have survived with such fervor for so many hundreds of years and even managed to crawl from the rubble after two world wars, facing the destruction of its art and records. No doubt, there is something about Krampus, something untouchable. In parapsychology, my primary field of study, we've come to understand that our thoughts are never really destroyed, but rather exist as energy in the ether we call the universe. And when focused upon enough, 
these thoughts take on a life energy of their very own. While there is no giant horned demon tormenting children and stuffing them in sacks or disemboweling them every December 5th, the energy and Krampus consciousness seems to live on. It has traversed oceans and borders, cultures and demographics in a way that very little ever has before or since. So often, folklore is lost to the ages or simply becomes outdated and deliberately left in an attic box to be forgotten. But with Krampus, something stirs in the hearts and minds of everyone he touches. He sticks with you, no matter your age or your roots. Even Santa, while dismissed by some, doesn't traverse as many borders as Krampus himself. Perhaps it is because we all have a shadow side. We relate to him in the same way we relate to a villain in a film. They often have a stronger character arc than the archetypal hero. Krampus is no hero, but he does speak directly to the darkness living under the surface of humanity, something we often try with great difficulty to suppress and keep silent. He is the primal, gut-wrenching, and grotesque representation of punishment and exacting rage, and yet the figurehead of an ultimate taboo tormenting those we feel who have wronged us in ways we wouldn't dare speak on as humans. He steps from the pages of horror and into our lives at a time of year where ego is supposed to be in check, and yet he is the core of the very dark of the ego. Perhaps now, as we move into new eras of celebrating the shadow in the same way we celebrate the light, this unspoken part of human consciousness is finally growing greater acceptance in a world where it was once shunned. Or perhaps the parades and fanciful costumes are our own way of placing chains on the great Krampus in our feeble attempts to chain an energy that simply won't be tamed in the wilds of the Austrian winters. Here's our chat with Chad Lewis. It's so great to have you. And it's so awesome to be talking about winter folklore and the crazy legends behind all of it. You just did an amazing book, which I was so grateful to be a part of because it's, it's super cool. And that's Winter Legends and Folklore. Let's start there. What got you going on winter folklore? What was it for you that really attracted you to this stuff? Like a lot of my projects, it came in pieces. As both of you probably know, when you're working on something, you'll get something that's off to the side a bit that's really fascinating, but it's not part of what you're doing right at the moment. So I was collecting these winter pieces when I was doing stuff on the Windigo for the book or uh, some Krampus uh, research. And I started accumulating a lot of it where I thought, how much could I actually go out and find? How much of this could I dig up if I was actively looking for it? So that's what I started doing. And it really was partly because so many of the legends I was interested in, they were, uh, for instance, I have several books here on the history of Santa Claus. And they're all 400 pages in depth, thoroughly researched, where most people, they don't want that. You know, so some of these topics that I love, I knew other people loved them, but they didn't want to be a scholar in them. You know, they didn't want to read 500 pages on the evolution of the Christmas tree. <laughs> oh, come on. This is a bit of light bedtime reading. <laughs> but but so that's what gave me the idea of doing this little monograph, 100 pages, just basically not the cliff notes, but the highlights of boil it down for those who are interested but not obsessed. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And. I can I can think of more interesting things to read than a 400 page book on a Christmas tree. <laughs> I mean, I love Christmas trees, but there's a limit. <laughs> and and that's another thing is that a lot of the books I was reading, it was based on whether it was just Christmas or winter solstice folklore, um, creatures of the winter season, and none of it was compiled together. So you had all these again, you have to get six different books on all of this and really spend a year or two diving into it when most of the people that when I lecture at libraries and universities and that most of the people there are interested, but not diehards. 
you know, they're, they're, they want to enjoy this, but again, they don't want to invest the time or energy to spend three months digging into this book. It's just, I guess it's just the way yeah. society is today. No, I, I agree though. I mean, like there's, I think, I think that kind of a thing can get a little dry, but I know for us, the, the the folklore that's there and the stuff that you have featured in the book and i mean i haven't even i haven't even read the book yet i've just did all the illustrations so i kind of know what the what stories you you've got in there and you have picked some really really cool cool stories that i think are going to be really unforgettable for a lot of people what was your motivation for sharing this aspect of folklore with people at this point what do, what do you think it is about winter folklore that people are are still hanging on to for those of us in a winter climate, and for those of us who do not escape it by going to warm places during the winter, you know, something you can't avoid. And my background's in the field of psychology, and I was really interested in why people become depressed and get a sense of melancholy in the winter, you know, season affective disorder, a uh, sad, you know, where millions of people in America, due to a lack of sunlight, a lack of vitamin D, poor exercise and poor diet in the winter really get this depression that settles in. Yeah. And of course you can combat that by doing all the things I mentioned in reverse, but I was interested in the history of winter because no one on the planet has ever had an easier time in winter than we have today. And I, I think yeah. that gives me comfort in knowing there's no one who's ever walked this planet that it has had it easier where we have indoor plumbing, most of us. We have electricity. Most yeah. of us have you know, heat, enough food to eat. Where I look back at my ancestors and others where they might have been in a one-room cabin in the winter. No indoor plumbing, hmm. no electricity, no lights, barely enough food to survive. And that always brings me out of my funk when I'm complaining there's nothing good to watch on Netflix. <laughs> First world problems. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's well, it's true. And I mean, you know, both you and I we're in very similar climates where it gets brutally cold, and there's a lot of prairie around us. And like you say, like we've got transit. We've got you know, even if you can't get your car out of out of the parking lot, you can probably catch a bus. You know, and it's like we've got all of these realms of mobility that is yeah we we can take for granted even when they get frustrating and that's what interests me is how did the early peoples and i'm not talking the very early indigenous peoples but the people that came in my country here in the u.s um that, that came here the uh, immigrants from the old countries and how did they deal with this and what did they do to make it through the winter season and it turns out they did a lot I mean, yeah. they had so many rituals and superstitions and customs that came with them from their old cultures that they brought to the new world and settled and spread it throughout the country, uh, you know, bringing these as part of what they could because they couldn't bring a lot of other stuff, but they could certainly bring their customs and traditions. Oh, totally. And to me, that's where this stuff gets so interesting because the things that are talked about are not often things that we associate with you know the holidays and and stuff like that some of these tales are so are, are so intricate and almost lead almost bleed into halloween a little bit what's your favorite tale in this book if you can pick one well you're right that most people think of halloween as being the scary time of the season when you start digging through all the old winter legends and lore you start to see that Halloween can't hold a pumpkin candle to the weirdness of winter. It's and true. I really loved uh, the idea of telling ghost stories in the winter time, specifically around Christmas time. Originally, again, most people think Halloween, let's tell ghost stories, spooky tales. That's the time mm -hmm. to do it. And it is. But traditionally, that was done on Christmas Eve for one reason was that it was believed that on Christmas Eve, spirits could not come back and get you so you had free reign to talk as much garbage about them as you wanted oh, oh dear. and they couldn't do anything so again when you're sitting at home all you have is a fire no lights i mean you tell ghost stories by the fire and one of the weirdest 
pieces of folklore I dug up was the idea that if you're sitting around telling ghost stories by the fire and your shadow is projected on the wall, if you do not see your head in your shadow, it meant you would not survive the next year. Wow. So I can just imagine families scrambling around to make sure everybody had a head on their shadow, (laughs) (laughs) you know, trying to scare one another in the Christmas. And it makes sense when you think of the, probably the most popular Christmas story, a Christmas Carol, it's actually Mm -hmm. a ghost story. Totally. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's interesting because like you say, there's so much of the paranormal that is tied to Christmas. And uh, I used to host a sort of a a lecture slash workshop slash tour around Edmonton. And it was called the ghost of Christmas past, because it it is so intricately tied to the idea of of spirits of ghosts. And I had no idea just how deep it went until I started doing the illustrations for this book. (laughs) I had no clue. (laughs) And it was it was so much fun. I, I was having so much fun just doing the research so I could get these get these tales right and i was having such a blast kind of falling falling down the rabbit hole with with each one Uh, did you learn anything new while covering some of these tales because i mean you've heard so much and you've been doing this for so long was there like a moment where you thought oh my god i didn't know that every day and i pride (laughs) myself on that where not just in this book but almost every subject whether I'm lecturing or talking to people, I try to learn something new about it. And I I think sometimes in this field, people that write books and that, you know, they're afraid of admitting they don't know something. And, you know, I'm the opposite where if I don't know what I want to know it. And I was surprised at some of the weirdest legends around winter, like on Christmas Eve, it is said that bees will actually sing Christmas carols. And That's adorable. I don't know if they hum them or buzz along to them or what. And, you know, in our climates, it's hard to find bees in the winter. I was just going to mm-hmm. say all our bees are dead. I don't know what they're saying. But. <laughs> yeah. Dead or sleeping, yeah. But that was the idea. And then there's an, another one that on uh, New Year's Day, you would close up all your windows in your home. And then you'd close up uh, all the vents from your fireplaces and smoke out your house. And the entire oh, family would sit in the house as long as they could before hopefully not passing out and dying and then go out into the, the fresh air and you'd be cleansed for the new year. And once the entire family was out, that's when all the pets and livestock were brought into the house and they were smoked wow. as well. All oh, those poor animals. <laughs> exactly. And oh, I just, geez. just the idea of this house, I mean, how long would that smoke smell sit in the house for the whole year? Oh, I, mm-hmm. you'd never get it out of fabrics. I mean, <laughs> that's just, oh, that's a, that's amazing. Was there a, a particular time period or, or culture that you found had the most prolific amount of, of winter folklore? I guess probably the, the places that were the coldest, I'm imagining. Yes, it was the European countries mm-hmm. and a lot of that came over when they uh, came to United States and parts of Canada as well. And a lot of that was brought, but it was forgotten over the years that most people today, you know, they love if they celebrate the holiday of Christmas, they love decorating the Christmas tree or going caroling or mm-hmm. singing Christmas carols, but they forgot the origin of what that was, why we did that. And I think partly for me, that so many people today have a negative feeling about the holidays, that they think it's overly commercialized and that it's about greed and giving the most money you can in presents that we don't want or need. And I agree with people, but also that I think when you start to learn some of the deeper significance and importance of these rituals, again, that putting lights on trees to keep evil away and to be an everlasting reminder that light will overcome darkness and that life will return in the spring. Uh, There's a lot of, for me, a lot of solace in that, that knowing that people have been doing that for thousands of years and I'm continuing that tradition. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love the lights. I love the tree. Like this year, I ended up putting it up really early, actually, because as soon as, oh yeah, as soon as Halloween went, went goodbye, um, it was funny, my little snake Galen, he got really quite 
depressed when it started to get colder outside and he he didn't want to get up he didn't want but he loves christmas and he loves the lights and the presents and the bake like the whole thing so as i was putting halloween decorations away it was like you know what the decorations are out anyway let's just haul out the christmas stuff because i'm gonna have to do this again in a few weeks anyway and we ended up like putting the tree up and and doing the whole thing and he was just ecstatic but it it really it really goes to show like that lack of light, especially, I mean, Edmonton is the most northern populated city. So, I mean, in the middle of winter, by the time it is 3, 30, 4 o'clock, it is dark here. So, I mean, that light, whether it be Christmas lights or, you know, whatever you've got going, it makes a huge, huge psychological difference, like you were saying. Like, it's it's massive. It really is. And imagine it 100 years ago when it affects us this much now and the old lumberjacks in the Midwest that worked during the winter, they called it that they would work from the time you can't see until you can't see yeah. because they would be up into the woods when it was still dark and they wouldn't get back until after it was dark. So you couldn't see to couldn't see. And it really is just that little bit of light of if you notice neighborhoods put up uh, decorations in the, the winter, it makes a huge difference just battling that darkness. And today we see it more as just as beautiful, it looks great, these lights. But in the old days, it was meant to ward off evil that was lurking in the darkest days of the year, that they were everywhere. The winter solstice pagan roots of the whole thing. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, around December 21st is the darkest day of the year. And apparently uh, it was at that time in Yule, during Yule, when people believe that the dead would have access to the living in a better way than, than ever before, which is fascinating. One of the reasons why you're supposed to have a fire going in your fireplace on the solstice, because that's one of the nights when the uh, different beings could come back and get you, that it was the darkest, uh, shortest day or the longest night. And that was gave them plenty of opportunity to come after you. So it was advised that you'd have a fire in your fireplace during that time to ward off all of those creatures. And of course, it would bring light and heat and warmth and you'd cook over it at the time as well. Well, I know. In, I mean, in Alberta, the the folklore and the I should say the, the lore and the legends and the talk of of winter spirits is of course huge here because we do have a, a you know strong indigenous population and they it the idea of spirits like the wendigo and which we've talked about so many times before uh, i mean it is a very very real prolific thing here and so you know the idea that these cold winter nights you can bring these can bring these things. I mean, in many places, Canada included, it's not just a story, but many believe that that is really real. That this, you know, it's it's even more than just a simple ghost story. A lot of people really believe that this was the hardest time of the year, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And you think of it as in the old days when you were living there and probably farming that there was no guarantee you would survive the next year. If your crops failed or your animals went lame or stopped producing, your food ran out, you would literally not survive. So there was that fear that winter will continue on forever, which is why there were so many rituals and customs and celebrations to help bring spring forward, that life could continue because for most Throughout most of the history of the world, it was a life or death scenario. Yeah. Like bur the burning of the Yule log to entice the sun to return. Yeah, and the Yule log's great. I mean, the old days, a Yule log is traditionally people would want to burn it during the 12 days of Christmas, which ran from mm -hmm. Christmas, December 25th through January 6th, the Epiphany. And um, people would go out on their property and cut down a tree and start hauling it back to their home, and it would be a huge spectacle. They'd have bells and ribbons on the tree. They'd be drinking spiked cider, laughing with their neighbors, singing carols. It would be a huge activity. And then you'd bring the tree into your home and either cut it into a log size, or you could just shove part of it into the 
fireplace and start it with the remnants of the previous year's Yule log and keep it burning for the 12 days of Christmas, either throwing more wood on top of it or just hauling the tree in a little bit further uh, when it burns down. And, <laughs> and of course, today I, I write in the book that for most people, we're not out on our property cutting down a tree and dragging it in our house. But people still do have fires. Some will have a fire every night on the 12 days. If they don't have a fireplace, they light candles, even electric candles. Or now, almost any video screen will have a Yule log fire burning if you want to uh, view it through the internet. So the idea remains the same, that the light is overcoming darkness and a reminder that demons will stay away and life will return. So I love it. I think people um, doing it today are just fascinating that I don't know if people who adhere to these legends today really believe that if they don't have a fire going for the 12 nights that a demon's going to come in, but you know, better be safe than sorry, I guess. Right. Yeah. I can never go back the other way. Can you, you can't go back and start (laughs) a fire when a demon's beating on your window. It's like, hurry up, honey. The demon's here. I love fire though. I always have like, it's, it's just, I love candles. I love, and I mean, obviously I eat it, uh, but like fire breathing, I'll just the, the whole, there's something about fire. I think that really is so it, it's so primal and we're, and we're touching on it just by talking about this, where it is, it's, it's not only symbolic, but it, I don't know, it just, it feeds the soul somehow. It's, it's just a, it's a wonderful thing. Like when I was doing the, uh, when I was doing my tours years ago here, I called it fireside ghost experience because it was, we, we based the whole thing around the idea of, of a campfire and telling these stories because it, it just, it brings something back to people. I think that is, is so, it's so root in our souls, but on the cover of your book though, of course, is probably one of the most noted <laughs> Christmas legends. No, not Santa, but Krampus. And he, I, that is one of those tales that I just I ended up doing an article on it recently for a haunted magazine. I did the the feature, and this is one bit of of legend that has not been lost. What do you think has kept Krampus around for as long as it has? Let me first state that I think a lot of people are going to buy my book just for the illustrations you did in the book. Oh, thank because- you. Because. They all captured that amazing early day vibe of all of these legends and what they mean to people as a culture and a society and in a greater context. Um, so I let me say that first. And the Krampus one that you did is one of my favorites. And I think it it goes back to what I was saying earlier about people being fed up with the holidays, uh, not seeing the time of compassion and giving and loving thy neighbor type thing. And I think Krampus, in a weird way, brings that forward. Um, Krampus, of course, is the what many people call the anti-Santa, which I think he's more of Santa's right-hand, well, not man, but right-hand demon, if you will. He looks part goat, part devilish monster with this long phallic tongue and, you know, hooved feet. And his job is to punish the naughty children. And whereas St. Nicholas would give children that left their shoes out for him, coins, candies, chocolates, and the like, fruits a a lot of the time. But it was Krampus's job to punish them. And here in America, if you were an ill-behaved child, the worst that would happen is you'd get coal in your stocking. Yeah. (laughs) Which in the old days would have been great. You could have burned it and heated the house with it. You're right. (laughs) But in Europe, they weren't playing around. This demon-like creature would come with St. Nick and whip children with his switch that had been ill-behaved. And I, you know, I knew, I thought I knew a lot about Krampus. Turns out I knew very little when doing this book that, you know, I was digging up some of the early um, American articles about Krampus from the early 1900s, late 1800s. And, you know, they went into great detail that Krampus's job was to snatch up the naughty children and then bring Mm -hmm. them back to his cave, which was a portal to hell. So he, if these kids were ill-behaved, they weren't getting a, you know, just a switch or, you know, some rotten food left as a, a prank. They were being dragged to hell. 
One one newspaper oh, even man. went so far to say that Krampus would bring them back to his cave and feed them to his pet bears. <laughs> of course they would. <laughs> yeah, I mean gruesome, wholesome Christmas time stuff. And right. And I'm amazed that in the 1800s and 1900s and through today in Europe, it was extremely popular to send one another Krampus cards for the season. And they would usually be a image of Krampus depicted by punishing children, usually in a very sadistic manner. And the more creepy they were and bizarre, the more popular they were. And they'd send them and it would say, greetings from Krampus. Hope you have a great season. And, and people would send them to their friends and loved ones and love it. They loved getting into the dark side because it really, I think it balanced out the over sugar side of the holiday season we have today. Well, yeah, I, I think that that actually brings me to my next question is, was Krampus kind of a pressure release for people? Because here it is December the 5th, Krampus, Krampus not. And if, I, I often wonder if, you know, because the, the Christmas season, oftentimes, especially for, for young people and whatnot, really focused on, you know, you got to be good because if, you, if you're not good, Santa's not going to come with presents. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole almost like all saints idea behind Christmas. And Krampus, almost like Halloween, almost strikes me as like a pressure release. Because I know in, in the Alpine countries, when I was when I was researching this this article that I wrote, it was amazing to me how absolutely crazy the further out you went, the more crazy and insane people got like drinking and like knocking on neighbors doors and banging, you know, banging on windows and hauling kids out by their pajamas. Like it was like absolute crazy. Man, is this like was this a pressure release for people? Is that a good theory? I certainly agree with that. I think it was, again, the, the hardship of winter. So it was important to have several dates to look forward to that you know, sitting here in November, late November, you might not be able to make it through February, but you could make it to December 5th, the evening. And then on December 5th, you could make it to December 24th. And, you know, kind of seeing the next line in front of you rather than running the marathon. And I think it was, it was a chance for people to uh, drink spirits <laughs> and let off some steam. And the idea that it terrified children was accurate, but yet at the same time, it was a fascination with them. I found an old newspaper article from the early 1900s in America talking about that St. Nick would often leave a little St. Nick doll with the kids that he thought had been well-behaved. And with the kids that were ill-behaved or naughty children, they would leave a little Krampus doll. And the newspaper article was kind of upset because they reported that so many of the kids wanted the Krampus doll <laughs> rather than St. Nicholas. And I thought that was funny that even in the 1900s, people loved Krampus and kids, even though they were fearful of him. You know, at night uh, during the Christmas time or the winter, you know, parents would often, if the kid wasn't getting to bed or being fussy, they'd say, oh, that sounds like bells of of Krampus outside jingling about maybe he's out waiting and you know the kid would snap up and go right to bed but at the same time that they were fearful of Krampus they also had that that anti-hero thing of him of kind of wanting to see him because he's just so badass I I just have to say I I would have been that kid I would have wanted the Krampus doll yeah me too <laughs> I I was that kid I I was like I was never I was never the girl into Barbie dolls or whatever if, if I was gonna have something Krampus would have been that would have been it for me like I would have been happy with a Krampus doll I don't know Mike would what what side would you have fallen on Oh I'm a definite Krampus guy Yeah like I'm... Santa scared the crap out of me <laughs> <laughs> Why Why does Santa freak you out uh, there's, there's this creepy old man with a beard who sneaks into your house in the, at night. <laughs> what are you doing? Get out of here. Yeah, fair so, enough. There was an actual study done uh, looking at video of children visiting Santa at the mall or wherever. And mm. they videotaped the, all the children coming in, not knowing uh, the kids didn't know it. And they had researchers assess what they thought the children's mood was, whether they were 
happy, terrified, you know, joyous or indifferent. And like only 1% they found seemed to show signs that they liked being there with Santa. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and the, most of them were indifferent, you know, that they just, well, here we are. But an equal number were terrified. I was terrified. I was one of those yeah. kids who was terrified. Apparently, I, I was only frightened the first the first round. I, I don't remember being frightened after that, but I don't know. I was a weird kid. <laughs> and they the parents, you know, we build up uh, Santa so much that I, I'm just reading the uh, biography of Santa Claus, a great book. And the author made a really, I thought, uh, very important point that for Christmas, a lot of kids will get about the same number of presents that they get for their birthday from Santa. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, for Santa might leave one or two presents. The same thing they'll get at their birthday. But those Christmas presents from Santa took on a much larger role and significance than the birthday presents did. You know, people aren't yeah. dreaming for a month before their birthday about what they're going to get for their present like they right. are on Christmas. So the idea of Santa, this bigger than life figure, really played into the fact that people appreciated the gift they got more than they would if it was a birthday or graduate or whatever type of present. Yeah, that oh, that that's so interesting because all these all these things that we do just by rote at Christmas, as they've just got such a, a so many layers involved in them. It, it's what I found really interesting too is I was kind of going through these these different pictures and, and drawing these the creatures, whether it be Krampus or the Bellsnickel and you know, the Wendigo, all these different portrayals, is that a lot of them had these these overlapping characteristics that I thought was really interesting. Things like antlers or they'd be very thin or they'd be very old or I, I thought that was really interesting. And I was I was kind of noticing this overlap. I don't know whether I was just seeing like bits and pieces of pagan tradition where we were seeing more of these woodland creatures or did you notice that as well like that there was this this sort of overlap between some of these these creatures in appearance the creatures themselves were thought to be part of the woods coming out of the woods and even santa even saint nicholas was first portrayed as wearing furs that he could commune and talk with animals in the woods and that he was a man of the woods and that he was wearing all these furs, and then eventually he took on some blue color and some green color, and then the red as we know him today of wearing. But yeah, he was a a, a person of the woods, and same with Belsnickel. You know, he came from the immigrants as well, the Pennsylvania Dutch that brought him to America. And he was the same, this old weathered man of, of the woods carrying a big switch, some some of these characters, it makes sense because they're creatures you wouldn't want to run into regardless of whether it was day or night or wherever you were. But they really were these elemental people of the woods. And in the early days, that's what they were thought of, you know, being like supernatural beings like fairies and gnomes. Yeah, like there's a there's such an element of 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 magic in in Christmas that I, I like, I just love it because it's, it's, it's like my favorite holiday. I I think it's just incredible. And, you know, people oftentimes, you know, they're all down on it, but I, I think I, I love, there is a magic there that is, 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 is present at least for, for myself. But we actually, this coming month, we have um, Dr. Dean Raiden coming on and he's talking about the, the magic of this world. And, you know, you cover some of, that magic in the book right down to talking animals and i just like you were mentioning the bees before what is it about this season do you think that brings that magic like you were you were just saying about how you know the presents from santa mean more than your birthday presents what is it about this season that is so magic for people for me it has to be one part of it has to be the cold the snow the ice and that crushing feeling of winter where if you've ever spent, I don't know, Morgan, have you ever spent a uh, um, Christmas in a snow free area like Florida or California? Uh, well, yeah, I used to live in Vancouver and it was often just raining. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have that same feel of Not that at all. magic to it. Yeah. No. 
I have some families who on family members who unfortunately live in Florida here in the United States. And if you go down there in December, it does not have a feel of Christmas at all. So again, back to your question, I think winter and snow and ice and cold has to be part of it because, you know, people, people were fearing starving everywhere, but not quite to the extent they did in the cold culture. So um, the idea of using what you had, whether it was a holly or mistletoe or ivy to help ward off evil and make it through the season, that was, for me, the key part has to be the winter part of it. Yeah, I agree. Like, as, as frustrating as the snow can get, <laughs> because, oh, my Lord, I mean, it it, it does make things difficult. And, and oddly enough, it's it's so weird because it, it does make christmas shopping a little harder because you're you know dragging around coats and boots and whatever but there's something about that if it was not there it wouldn't be the same it just it wouldn't be the same and there's something about even today as i'm sitting here talking to you guys it is blowing and snowing outside we've got i don't know how many inches we have on the ground now but it's pretty snowing um but he's just sitting here i've got a blanket and a drink and you know candles are going and it there's something about that that is so it is it's so special that we don't see in any other season and of course krampus night is well being being that we're pre-recording this it's coming up but it will have happened uh you know once people are hearing this uh talk about krampus night in wisconsin what does it look like because you're going to be there Yes. So Krampus night is celebrated on December 5th, going into December 6th. Uh, So the 5th, that's when St. Nicholas would make his rounds and Krampus accompanying him. And recently in the last couple decades in America, more and more communities have got together and celebrated Krampus night, usually with parades where people dress up as a Krampus. And remember, many of the early depictions of Krampus were also in a female form. It wasn't just mm-hmm. a male Krampus running about. I mean, Christmas monsters are equal opportunity terrifiers. So people would gather in these parades and hundreds and thousands of people would gather hoping to get whipped by Krampus, someone in a costume. And <laughs> one of the biggest events in Wisconsin is in Milwaukee, where it's a huge event where they have a parade. Of course, they have a couple beer halls serving traditional early um, drinks of the Christmas time, vendors, of course, where you can get all your uh, gift giving done and presentations on the history of these legends. But by far, the most popular is the parade where people gather and all these bushy devil like creatures walking through, you know, with this thick matted down fur suit and looking crazy and carrying a switch with them, these big sticks, just waiting to whip somebody. It's a really fun time. Uh, there was, I have to say that female Krampus is way worse than the male Krampus. I'm, I was talking to Mike about this before the, yeah, before you got terrifying. here. Oh my God. So uh, for the, for the audience, when I was delving into female Krampus, she, her whole pattern was she would not just drag your child off to the pits of hell in her cave, but eviscerate them, stuff them full of rocks and sticks, sew them back up. I mean, it was right out of Hellraiser. Like she was by far, far and she didn't make it as famous as as the male Krampus, which was, I mean, maybe that's a good thing, but like she was just absolutely wicked. And, and she didn't start at the beginning of this legend, did she? She came later. As most of these legends go, they they morph and they progress over time. That they don't they're not stagnant. They don't just stay uh, stationary. So the idea of what they mean to us changes over the decades and centuries. And seemingly so do the creatures themselves. And you and I and Mike, we talked about this on the Wendigo show of mm-hmm. how today's version has antlers or horns. When traditionally it never did, but now that's what it is, mm. uh, for better or worse. And maybe the same thing with with Krampus that it expands, and same thing with uh, Santa Claus. You know, he started out with the the tiny reindeer, eight tiny reindeer, and he was a jolly little elf himself. 
and then became an average size uh, human and, um, you know, got the reindeer full size and added Rudolph and, and the elves and all that. But that comes as a legend builds and it comes as every new generation puts their spin on the legend. You know, Krampus to us today is not what it was to people 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And it's certainly not what it's going to be 50 years in our future. Yeah, I know when I was was reading about the, the various ways that Krampus was uh, both, I guess, cele- celebrated. I don't know if celebrated is the right word. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> when, when he's the most talked about, um, it was it was interesting to me that the, I guess the in the Alpine community, still over in Europe, the further out you got, the crazier the traditions stayed like it, the more the more urban it became you got the parades and the and the you know the the celebrations and the kids were in there and getting candy and there was a, it, the kids were very much a part of it but like the more alpine you got and the more rural you got <laughs> the more violent <laughs> everything seemed to seem to get and i i guess at one point there was a a group of uh, i think it was in i want to say it was in germany but or austria i think it was austria there was a a a group of psychologists that came forward that actually they tried to ban Krampus because mm. it the 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 rituals were getting so violent where they were like neighbors would be dressing up in the costumes and they would bang their neighbor's door down and grab their kids and drag them out to their yard and just start wailing on these these poor unsuspecting kids and the kids knew that they were the neighbors but at that point who cares like you're just <laughs> looking at this like devil thing with antlers that's now like beating on you with a stick but it was like it was crazy and and people of of that generation like 1920s and 30s or whichever uh that were living in these rural communities were coming forward and saying i am like i literally have ptsd because my neighbors were trying to kill me when i was five it was uh, unbelievable it was crazy and there really was the same with Bell Snickles. Uh, newspapers would interview people that as adults say they still are traumatized by Bellsnickel coming to their house when they were five. And the old newspaper accounts from the turn of the 1900s were filled with reports and news articles about uh, communities saying that these legends have gotten too dark, Mm. that they become too violent, and it's time to change it, and it's time to soften it up. And for a while, that really happened for many decades. But I'm happy to announce that in the last couple of decades, it seems like it has taken a turn back to the original folklore of it that we want Krampus to be scary we don't want Krampus handing out candy canes to people yeah we have that already we have Santa <laughs> we don't yeah. you know, we don't we don't need it we, we Krampus doesn't need to fill that role he's he's good he's good at being terrifying and I I don't know I think he needs to stay horrifying and terrifying and that's just that's just I don't know it's the way he should be I'm in total what? agreement with that yeah, if you if you don't celebrate the darkness, you can't see the light. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and I think are we sugarcoat enough in this world? And I, I I think these creatures they have a they have a place. You know, they they really have a place being you know legend, lore, you know, story, spirits, whatever whatever people believe these to be. Like they have they have a very specific place, and I think they're 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 dark for a reason, and they they need to stay that way. Like they're just <laughs> they're supposed to be nasty and evil, and and I don't I think they're I think they're fantastic. I absolutely love doing working on your book, and I'm so glad that you asked because it was it was such a a treat to just go through the whole thing, and I learned a ton. When can people buy this? It's now for pre-order on your website. When do you think it's coming out? When? How do people get a hold of this book? Because they need to. Well, certainly um, my website, Amazon, any online. Um, it should, I'm hoping, knock on wood, be out anytime, uh, hopefully before Christmas. But I also originally wanted it out before uh, Thanksgiving. But here in mm. America, believe it or not, we still are having huge supply chain issues, especially in the printing industry. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our printers uh, here are backlogged beyond belief to the point where they can't guarantee that when they send you a proof of the book, that it's going to be the same paper that you see it on, that they have the right to change papers. So uh, long story short, I'm hoping it'll be out by uh, Christmas, maybe even sooner, but 
knock on wood, um, you know, hopefully I'm not sitting here saying, I hope it's out by Valentine's Day. <laughs> well, it, it if people have not gone and pre-ordered this thing, they have to because it's it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. And it's such a great way to pass the time winter wise. And I'm, I'm so glad the illustrations worked out. I was really trying to keep the old world look to everything. I did everything in pen and ink because I thought that's that's probably the best way to do this is to keep it really like just these sort of sharp edges almost looks like it was uh it was done on uh, wood carving so that it it was it was sharp that way and i think i i think your i mean your writing is always fantastic and i think it's going to be a it's going to be phenomenal so chadlewisresearch.com you guys go get the book it's also there's a link to it on entityseeker.ca as well chad thank you so much for being here and doing this with us and entertaining us again (laughs) thank you and keep an eye out Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the Book of Life process. We all know by now that our proverbial Book of Life gets written as we go. We have the ability to manifest various actually billions of probabilities every time we visualize or take action. More probabilities are available to us at every turn. But imagine if we really did have a book of our life, past, present, and future. What would it say? What if we were the ones to write it? This can be a fun exercise to allow us to refine what it is we might really want and get our focus going in the right direction. When you have a quiet place, envision your book. It can look however you want. Remember, your book has no ending right now. You are in the middle of a chapter, which is your present. No matter how the book began or is going, you get to write the rest. You're the main character. Where will you go? What will you do? Who do you meet? Get creative and don't forget to give it a happily ever after. This is an exercise you can return to again and again and amend the book whenever something better comes along. Remember, you are the editor and writer, no one else. And as you go into your day, keep the feeling of your ending in mind and watch what happens. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at entityseeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at darkpatine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.